My name's Blake Hargreaves, and this is Future Stops. you're hearing is that of Canadian composer Sarah Devachi. Now based in LA, but originally from Calgary, she creates meditative, long-form works both for solo and ensemble performance, with a strong interest in organs and keyboard instruments of all kinds. Sarah's musical explorations extend beyond the keyboard itself into ideas of tuning and timbre, creating immersive, otherworldly sonic realms with everything from traditional pipe organs to oddities like the Mellotron. Today on Future Stops, we speak to Sarah Devachi about her two new albums and the exploratory, hard-to-define nature of her work. I mostly do, I would say, minimalist, uh, experimental music, and also predominantly electroacoustic music. There isn't really like a defined break for me between when I do electronic music and, and acoustic compositions. And I'm very much interested in musical instruments and texture and timbre and harmony and, and that whole world. Um, you know, I say instruments in terms of like the objects, like the way that they work in addition to the way that they sound. I've always thought that the organ, I mean, I've said this a few times that the, I feel like the organ is like the acoustic synthesizer. It's like the, you know, original version of what a synthesizer is. Um and there are so many similarities, like the way that you create your own sound, the way that you kind of build your timbre in a very different way than you do with an instrument like the piano, for instance. Um, and the way that over the course of playing the instrument, you manipulate the timbre in different ways and you have this flexibility of doing that, um, I think is, you know, it's such a, a major connection between the two instruments. And I think you get a sense of um, a similar kind of sound experience when you're listening or playing to both of those instruments. So I used to work at the National Music Center in Calgary. I worked there back when it used to be Kansas Music Foundation. In um, 2007, I started working there. And I used to give tours um, of the collection, and then I started um, getting more and more involved in the collections department, doing research and writing and stuff like that. And so the years that I wasn't living in Calgary, I was doing a lot of remote research and, and stuff like that for them. Um, so yeah, I worked there for about a decade, but you know, we. We mentioned that I um, grew up playing piano, um, and that's kind of how I got the job. Is is because at the time it was a keyboard instrument museum, you know. So giving tours, you had to be able to play piano, basically. But that was such a, a rich learning experience for me, and it really informed my idea of organology and, and timbre and, and how instruments are these very specific things, you know, especially for um, 
the family of keyboard instruments because the keyboard is just an interface. You know, um, it's a thing that's been slapped on to so many instruments because it's just an intuitive way of sorting out pitches. Um, but in a lot of those instruments, it really has nothing to do with the mechanics of how the sound happens. I mean, it does in a piano, I guess, but in an organ, it's it's a little bit different. In a synthesizer, it's a little bit different. Um, in a harpsichord, it's completely different. You know. Um, and so, yeah, all of those instruments, I mean, it, it spanned the history of keyboard instruments, basically. So any, the way that I got into organ was through that, the way that I got into synthesizers, um, being able to play harpsichords, older pianos, you know, um, like this idea of different organs um, from different countries sounding different. Of course, that was true with pianos, too. And having that sense of, you know, how an Austrian piano sounds different from an English piano sounds different from you know whatever an, an american piano having that appreciation of specific qualities of instruments was really interesting um, and then of course having access to all sorts of electronic instruments that i never would have come across the time spent at the national music center resonates in her work starting with a pipe organ cassavant opus 3623 installed in jack singer concert hall in 1987 the National Music Center grew into a collection of musical and cultural objects with a huge variety of keyboard instruments. Devachi's exposure to these instruments while working there led to a fascination with timbre and tone that continues to this day as she pursues a PhD on the subject. This passion is very evident on her new album, Cantus Descant, which features analog electronic instruments from the heyday of the technology, the 1970s, when the synthesizer and other sonic inventions changed the sound of music from the classical to the pop world. I mean, I do work a lot with um, analog instruments. And one of the things, I, well, I mean, I guess maybe the main thing that attracts me to that era um, is really that the instruments have this sense of instability that you don't, that once you kind of hit into the digital realm in the 80s, um, you know, there are pros and cons to all of these instruments. But one of the cons, I would say, I guess, as soon as you start to move into the digital era is um, this sense of stability and, you know, uh, like a kind of tonal and um, in terms of uh, temperament as well, this sort of stability that, in my opinion, doesn't get you the same kinds of interesting things happening with overtones and sort of this shifting frequencies um, that you get in the instruments from the analog era um, which you get simply because they're just it's older electronics and you know they're always going to kind of shift in and out of place um, and it's the same thing with acoustic instruments right when you have a violinist um, if you ask them to play the same pitch 10 times it's always going to fluctuate a little bit because they're human you know and it's never going to be with that level of precision um, but that's where you get these you know like Kind of lush, full qualities, these interesting qualities, in my opinion, um, in the sound that are really subtle and, you know, of like a more detailed nature, um, but they're there. And I think, you know, the average listener even um, still feels the difference between something that, that has that instability built into it. about timbre is you know it includes these 
sort of more generic ideas about, um, you know, frequency spectrum and spectral content, you know, whether it has a lot of overtones or whether it's a basic sound and stuff like that, that, you know, obviously shape the, the association that we have with that specific sound. Um, but for me, it stretches much further back from that. And, you know, it kind of, when you zoom out of the actual sound that you're hearing, you get to the space of the instrument, the physical instrument, um, which I think is just as much a part, you know, the mechanics of it and the way that that specific instrument is constructed um, has just as much to do with the actual sound. And of course, when you get into the acoustic world, that's even more so um, because you have the actual components like the woods and the metals and things like that that are contributing specifically to the sound. And then you can zoom out even further and you get to the player um, and particularly this dialogue that the player has with the instrument. And again, I think that's a really... For me, it's a thing that's brought more into focus with these instruments that are a bit more, I don't know what the word would be like, I guess interactive in the sense, you know, like with organs and synthesizers in the sense that the player has a lot more control over how the instrument um, is functioning as opposed to a pianist who is kind of working more specifically with what the piano does, you know, and it's kind of speaking to that rather than having this dialogue with the instrument, um, which again, I think is a hallmark of, of both organs and synthesizers. You know, and then it even goes back further to, you know, like in the case of uh, electric music, like the amplification system and all that kind of stuff. And then the listener, um, when it gets to them, that they're able to create their own sound and that sense of what they're experiencing is particular to their ear and particular to their experiences. Um, and it's, you know, the whole sort of chain, the whole process that I think all of those things contribute to what we have this idea of timbre being, you know, that it's, it's an experience more than it is this like singularly measurable thing that, you know, we have a frequency of whatever and it has, you know, every even overtone or whatever, you know, to create this kind of sound. I think it's a bit more complex and a bit more, um, you know, qualitative than that. Um, the same way that minimalism functions in other types of arts, visual art or film, it's it's not necessarily about this narrative. It's not this arc of the progression in the sound. It's, it's actually this sense of being close to what's happening in the moment in the sound. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but just, you know, this idea of like being intimate the sound and being kind of um, near it in a way that uh, you're not in, you know, in music that's more melodically driven in music where you're just kind of jumping from one thing to the next really quickly and you don't actually get a sense of what you're really hearing. The tranquility of the music highlights all of the subtle, understated varieties of timbre and tone, gently coaxing the listener into a different state of engagement with a higher level of sensitivity. This is further enhanced by Davachi's use of different tuning systems, like mean tone, which gives the music an otherworldly quality to listeners accustomed to the much more widely used equal temperament tuning. We're used to working in equal temperament, right, which is the octave split into 12 equal segments. Mean tone basically is like another version of essentially what's just intonation, which is an, an early version of Pythagorean tuning, which is like a really basic form of just intonation that emphasizes the intervals of the fifth and then the fourth, which is the sort of correlate of the upside down of the fifth. Um, so in medieval music, Pythagorean tuning was kind of the, the main 
thing that was used, right? It was um, the octave, the fifth, and the fourth were kind of the main intervals that you used. And so um, when you're working in the Pythagorean tuning system, which is basically the circle of fifths, things tuned in the circle of fifths so that you get pure, you know, just fifths, because the third and its correlate to sixth, those are kind of in another metric, another sort of world of, of uh, harmonics, I guess you could say. Anyway, so in, I guess it would have been like the very early part of the Renaissance in the 1400s, they started to devise a way to play thirds. There was thirds were kind of the, you know, a new aesthetic horizon um, because in England, right, which was uh, still an island at that time, they didn't really get the memo, I guess, that fifths and fourths were the only intervals that you were supposed to use. So they were freely uh, integrating thirds into their music. Um, and when that eventually worked its way into Europe and European composers heard the third, they were like, oh, this this is nice. Let's try to use the third. Um, and so that harmony kind of became a thing. So yeah, mean tone tuning basically is um, just tempering the pure fifths, so making them a bit smaller, usually by a quarter of that discrepancy, the, the comma between the two, in order to get to make the thirds smaller so that you get pure thirds. Um, so it's the you know beginning of this idea of like triadic harmony of where we get the first, the, the dominant, um, the median and the tonic. What's interesting to me about um, mean tone is that as it developed, um, you know, into the 1600s, 1700s, even the 1800s to an extent before equal temperament was standardized, um, is that you get, you know, it's, it becomes a system of variation and, and particularity um, as you start to get all of these offshoots of the original quarter comma mean tone temperament. Um, and so now we're working in the area of irregular or well temperaments, right? Circular temperaments um, that still allow you to play in all of the keys, but in which each you know third or each fifth is kind of its own thing. So you might have some fifths that are tuned a quarter comma or some that are tuned a sixth of a comma, maybe some that are pure. Um, but yeah, mean tone for me is really interesting just because it is so variable and it has this element of impermanence, I guess, to it or like particularity to a specific thing the same way that an organ is specific to a space. Um, you know, this temperament might be very specific to this one piece or this one instrument. And it's a very sort of singular experience that I think is really interesting. I don't know why, like, I don't know where it came from. Um, but one thing that I've been interested a lot in lately are thirds. And there's a few different pieces on the records, um, like Midlands does it, Gold Upon White does it, um, Diophonia, sorry, Basilica, um, which is a piece that I actually could perform live um, if I ever get to tour again. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, all of those pieces kind of come from this 
exploration that I was looking at with thirds. And I think it's interesting, you know, again, with synthesizers, something as simple as a third can become quite complex based on, you know, how you're actually um, fine tuning the, the specifics of your oscillators and filters and things like that. And the same thing with organs, especially, you know, when you're looking at mixtures and stuff like that, that you can get really complex um, tonalities uh, from an interval as, as simple as a third. And um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just kind of exploring that movement of thirds, um, which maybe doesn't sound that exciting, but for me, it was pretty interesting um, coming from this interest uh, especially in the last couple of years, is like really intense interest in medieval music um, and being like, I'm only going to play fifth, you know, and kind of uh, exploring that that world and then being like, no, no, thirds, thirds are okay. Um, and then also exploring um, mean tone temperament a lot more, um, which has become my one of my favorite ways of, of exploring uh, temperament in the last couple of years as well. Um, and just understanding that that sense of the third as being um, this really rich interval that's really expressive, but also um, not like, you know, not like the cheapened experience that I feel like it is when you're in equal temperament and when you're sort of doing this major minor thing in classical music that can, you know, only go so far. Um, it's been nice to like rediscover the third. like you know other things like in terms of just sort of building up these really big chords is something that I like to do and kind of exploring this movement across the manuals and the depth of sound changing from the higher registers into the lower registers and even you know I think on a, a more micro scale um, even being able to hear how the timbre kind of shifts as you as you work into different registers um, or different ranks and I don't know that's it's just such a unique experience for the organ um, and it's not really something that you like, you know, it's kind of built into the instrument, whereas on a synthesizer, you kind of have to, um, I don't know, set it up to do it in that way. Um, it's something you have to be a little bit more like conscious of. Um, whereas, yeah, the organ already seems to have that idea built into it of, of just this like constantly shifting sound. coming out of the Middle Ages, which is very much this um, God-centric time, right? Everybody, um, religion is, is or Christianity is, is sort of the, the go-to belief system. And coming out of that time into the Renaissance, which was this, you know, complete shift towards like the, the human or, you know, rational mind and, and humanistic experiences and endeavors and, and life, you know, human life was this very like stark contrast between the two. And I think one of the concepts that came up um, during that time is this idea of, you know, this awareness of mortality, basically. Um, and this awareness, not even just of mortality, but of like time passing and things ending. Um, essentially this idea of impermanence um, and how it relates to the person. And I think for me, that's kind of where it ends is, is in this conceptual idea of impermanence. So yeah, I mean, that idea of it in terms of, I don't know, I was dealing with a lot of stuff when I was working on the records about 
you know, death and, and mortality and impermanence and things that, that remind you of time passing, but that are still kind of hanging in this air. And for me, that was, um, you know, a, a sort of aesthetic, I guess, that I wanted to explore on the record. And I think something that lent itself really well to organs um, and to that way of working with organs in this very particular, you know, particular to this organ, particular to this space, particular to this moment in time, especially on the stations series. The station series was recorded at Orgel Park, a center in Amsterdam dedicated to the pipe organ, which exists as a sort of lab. The main performance space contains five pipe organs, each bearing different qualities and building styles of the different eras of organ making. The organ de Vachy used for the station series on Cantus Descant is the Van Straten, a recreation of an instrument built in 1479, using many of the original parts and the same schematic from 540 years ago. So it's a specific type of organ that I think, especially in North America, is really uncommon to come by for a number of reasons. Um, it's a tracker organ and it uses, um, so, you know, most organs have uh, electrical blowers blowing the air into the bellows, um, but this still uses the, the hand-pumped bellows. I think there's like four or five of them uh, and they're quite large. Um, so when I was performing this piece, when we were recording this piece, um, I was playing and then another person, um, Hans Feidham, who works at Orgel Park, uh, was kind of going back and forth and uh, pumping bellows. Um, and it's also tuned in quarter comma mean tone. So all of those elements have made it one of my favorite organs that I've ever played. It also has this really, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about organs, like me specifically in terms of my um, aesthetic, I guess, as a composer, um, is that there are these instruments that are often associated with this really like, you know, overwhelming, almost like bombastic kind of sound, or they can be. Um, but I think a lot of people who don't listen to organs or who have never played an organ before um, aren't as aware of how, like, quiet and how sort of delicate and intimate organs can also be, um, even when they're being loud or, you know, even when it's in something like a lower frequency that that you would maybe associate with this larger sound. Um, that's really interesting to me, this idea of organs being sort of quieter instruments. Um, and that instrument, even though it is quite large, and it does have quite a large span, it, it just has this really delicate quality to me. Even when it's being loud, it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel loud. And uh, that was really interesting to me. So yeah, I did this series of, of the five pieces um, that, again, I don't, I don't even know how I'd play that on another instrument. Um, and I don't know how I'd play it live because it was so in the moment, especially um, when we were exploring um, letting the air, like letting the, the bellows empty a bit, you know, those kinds of things um, in my mind are just so specific to that moment and so specific to that instrument um, that I wouldn't even necessarily want to try to translate that onto something else. Cause I think, you know, it would just be a different thing. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, when you're working in those concepts, especially when, you know, you're dealing with like anything in sort of the Western classical tradition, I mean, you know, sacred music is always going to come up as something that was there or was an influence or had some kind of impact on it. Um, I try to, in my own work, try to, you know, sort of take the basic 
conceptual things that I think are interesting and leave the rest separate for me as much as I can. Like even with the station series, I mean, that's a, you know, kind of stealing, I guess, or borrowing from the idea of the stations of the cross, uh, which is not something that means anything to me from a religious perspective, but this idea of the word stations as being an expression of different states of being or states of moving through some kind of transition um, is, you know, a more basic concept that I think uh, anybody can, can relate to.
We just heard today's feature piece, Stations 2, from Canadian composer Sarah Devachi's new album, Cantus Descant. The album features five pipe organs from around the world, along with mellotron, synthesizer, vocals, and string arrangements. Devachi has also just released a double tour CD, which acts as a companion to Cantus Descant, featuring explorations and experiments with some of the material from that album. This live release, titled Figures in Open Air, features an additional organ not heard on Cantus Descant, the Cassavant at Église de Jésus in Montreal. So the album was planning to come out this fall anyway. And yeah, I had this idea that, oh, it might be cool to make, you know, like a CD that's really specific just to the tour that I'll sell. And I think partly because the record is a double album and I wouldn't have been able to travel because I tour alone. It would have been hard to carry like a meaningful amount of copies of the record um, to different shows. Yeah, so I thought it might be nice to have like a, a special tour CD or something. Um, and then, of course, when everything got canceled, <laughs> um, it kind of grew into a bigger like double CD of, of just live stuff to kind of obviously not replace um, the live shows, but to kind of give a sense of like what it would have sounded like maybe if I had been able to tour this record. I mean, I do a lot of organ shows and it's you know, 99% of the time in a place that I've never been to before with an organ that I've never played or heard or, you know, had any interaction with before. So it's interesting. I've, I've been thinking about a lot with other, you know, colleagues who I know who, who do organ stuff, um, who I think are not as particular in the same way. Um, for me, anytime I do an organ show, it's essentially like a unique piece that I'm making for that instrument. So in unless I'm doing something with electronics, I take the time of the sound check and usually add like an extra hour or two onto it as much as I can. Um, and I just sit there before the show and, and spend a couple hours actually creating the piece for that organ. Um, and I think, you know, there are certain things that, um, especially while I was working on this record, there were certain, you know, gestures that, came out as the way I see it, like sort of my particular approach to playing the organ or the things that I like to do specifically with organs, regardless of which organ I'm playing. So those things would sort of translate in a way into that instrument um, and into that performance. But yeah, it's always, I mean, I, I don't understand how you cannot do it that way. I don't understand how you can just go up to an organ and play it without actually understanding which stops it has and how the, you know, the manuals are um, set up and kind of getting this sense of the instrument itself, you know, and kind of playing to that specific thing. I think it's the same way that, you know, when people perform electronic music, um, there are sort of the more like hardcore people who, who kind of alter things to be able to play to the room specifically. You know, again, that's based on the speakers and the PA that's actually in that space and the uh, acoustics and, and the architecture of that space. So in my mind, it's not really any different, you know, just like um, fine tuning something to the particular space and the particular instruments that are there. Um, although it's maybe more extreme that I'm actually like changing the specific piece <laughs> for each organ. But I don't know. I like it. I mean, it's, you know, each organ is kind of its own thing. And, and I like the idea that you're creating something specifically for it and then 
after that show is gone, you know, that piece is kind of left with that instrument in that space. It's not really something that you carry from place to place like you do, like with normal or more sort of standard electronic music that um, just relies on a PA. So when you're doing this performance, um, like, and you have other instrumentalists, is it still like you talked about before where you're sort of coming up with your organ part, like on the, on site, um, but their parts are written before, or how does that work? Or do you, are you actually writing everybody's part in the days leading up to the performance? Yep. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I've done a few where I've actually had to write it on the day of, which is like uh, pretty crazy. Like I remember one I played in Calgary actually many years ago um, that I had three string players. And uh, so I got there early, like at noon or something. And I did the organ piece and then I wrote everybody's parts. And then I had to actually write out their parts. Like when I write mine, it's me performing. It can be super messy and whatever as long as I can read it and understand what's happening um but when I write for other people I have to actually score it for them in a way that they can read uh so I've had a few times where I've had to do that all in the same day and actually write it out for the players um, before the concert scoring a work on the day of the performance is impressive and courageous and I'm hopeful that Sarah Devachi is able to perform her work again live soon Until then, she has lots of recorded music to enjoy, which you can find links to on our website, futurestops.org. There you'll also find bonus material and ongoing discussions about this and every episode. And don't forget to subscribe to Future Stops so you never miss out. We'd like to thank Sarah Devachi for joining us this week and sharing her story and her process. And thank you for listening. Future Stops is a podcast from the Royal Canadian College of Organists, produced by Andrew O'Connor, with Haley Raymond as community manager and executive producer Elizabeth Shannon. I'm your host, Blake Hargreaves.